Chapter 3. Reimagining the Sales Function In this chapter, we'll reason from first principles to the sales function we discovered in Chapter 1. Then, in the following chapter, we'll expand our discussion to include environments where not all opportunities are major ones, and introduce you to the critical inside sales function. We commence with the direction of the solution, division of labor, and our four key principles. Yesterday, our sales function essentially consisted of a single salesperson. Tomorrow, sales will be the responsibility of a tightly synchronized team. Principle 1. Scheduling should be centralized. Our first principle dictates that, as we push towards the division of labor, our very first specialist must be a scheduler. We'll elect to call our scheduler a Business Development Coordinator, or BDC. We'll also refer to our salesperson as a Business Development Manager, BDM, to highlight their new focus. It's important to note that the BDC is not a sales assistant. The word assistant would imply that it's the BDM who allocates work. The opposite is actually the case. The BDC pushes work to the BDM. This means that the BDM must transfer any and all scheduling responsibilities to the BDC. This may be a more significant undertaking than it sounds when you consider that, in most cases, the BDM's scheduling responsibilities are not limited to the management of their own calendar. In most cases, salespeople are interacting with production and customer service, coordinating the delivery of clients' jobs. At this point in the discussion, it's premature to allocate specific activities to resources, but it'll do no harm to draw four very general conclusions. Number one, our BDC must perform all scheduling. Number two, our BDM will spend almost all of their time selling. Number three, our BDM should work in the field, not in an office. Number four, our BDC should work from the head office, ideally not a regional office. The first two conclusions are not at all contentious, but the importance of the second two is less obvious. BDMs work in the field, not in an office. Traditionally, salespeople split their time between the field and an office. And this is unavoidable when you consider the diverse range of activities for which they're responsible. If we have a choice, however, and we soon will, it makes sense to have BDMs spend all of their time in the field for two reasons. First, if we're going to spend the not insignificant amount of money required to employ enterprise-class salespeople, it makes sense to have them selling in the field where, presumably, they're more effective. And second, a fundamentally different approach is required for scheduling field and office-based activities, meaning that it's impractical to schedule a combination of the two. The BDC works from the head office. It would be tempting to assume that the BDC should operate in close proximity to the BDM, but the opposite is true. The BDC should operate in close proximity to the business functions with which sales must integrate. We've already discussed that the integration of sales, engineering, and production is increasingly important for the modern organization. Well, that integration is significantly easier to achieve if the individuals responsible for scheduling each function operate in close proximity to one another. In addition, if you consider the BDM's perspective, the BDM will feel less disconnected from the organization as a whole if their BDC is located in the head office. The relationship between the BDC and the BDM. Let's consider the relationship between the BDC and the BDM by contrasting sales with another environment in which we have senior people working closely with schedulers. 
That environment, of course, is the executive suite. That environment is the executive suite. In the executive suite of a decent-sized firm, we will likely encounter at least one executive who works closely with an executive assistant. Unlike a typical assistant, an executive assistant assumes overall responsibility for the initiatives in which the executive is involved, and also assumes responsibility for that executive's calendar. The executive assistant maintains an awareness of all initiatives on which the executive is working and their relative importance, and plans the executive's time so as to maximize the yield on their limited capacity. If we take the preceding sentence and substitute business development coordinator for executive assistant and business development manager for executive, we have a perfect functional description of the role of the BDC. And if we reflect on the nature of the relationship between the executive assistant and the executive, we will observe exactly the relationship that must exist between the BDC and the BDM in order for the sales function to be productive. This discussion also sheds light on the inevitable questions about, in practice, whether BDMs will find it demeaning for someone else to plan their calendars and whether potential customers will find it disturbing if BDMs fail to set their own appointments. The answer to both questions is a firm no. Treating salespeople like executives does not demean salespeople. If anything, it elevates their standing in the eyes of potential customers. The economics of the BDM-BDC relationship. At first glance, it would appear that we're multiplying expenses by partnering BDMs with BDCs. Nothing could be further from the truth. A traditional field salesperson averages two face-to-face -face business development meetings a week. If you partner that same person with a capable BDC, their effective capacity increases to four meetings a day or 20 a week. That's a tenfold increase in effective capacity. This means that two BDMs partnered with BDCs will do the same volume of work that would otherwise require 10 BDMs working alone. In practice, this means that you can reduce the size of your team of BDMs, retaining the most capable ones, and still perform the same volume of face-to-face -face meetings. When you consider that BDCs cost roughly half what BDMs do, the economic benefits are compelling. Principle 2. Workflows should be standardized. Our second principle dictates that we use a standard sequence of activities to originate opportunities, in other words, to identify or generate them, and to prosecute opportunities, in other words, to pursue them to their ultimate conclusion, a win or a loss. Although these two workflows are clearly part of the one value chain, it makes sense to treat them separately, simply because opportunities can be originated in batches, but they must be carried out or prosecuted one at a time. Because opportunities can be originated in batches via promotional campaigns, the idea of standardizing the first workflow is not particularly contentious. However, the case for standardization is not so clear where opportunity management is concerned. To frame this consideration as a question, do our salespeople require unlimited degrees of freedom in order to effectively win orders? The case for standardization. To address this question, we should first acknowledge that whenever we're selling, a potential customer is buying. Therefore, our opportunity management workflow is the flip side of our potential customer's procurement workflow. This means we can reframe our question as the following. Do our customers require unlimited degrees of freedom in order to make an effective purchasing decision? 
Viewed from this perspective, the answer is not necessarily. Increasingly, organizations are standardizing their procurement processes for those products or services they purchase regularly. What's more, different organizations' procurement processes for comparable products tend to be remarkably similar. If we consider major purchases, I suspect the greater variation we see in procurement procedures is more a consequence of an absence of procedure than it is evidence for the absence of a need for one. In other words, I'm suggesting that there probably is an objective, ideal procedure for making major purchases of various types. It's just that because organizations make major purchases infrequently, they haven't yet determined what that procedure is. I've often asked groups of salespeople who sell major products, for example, enterprise software, whether there's a right way and a wrong way for organizations to purchase a product like theirs. And I've always been impressed by how well-reasoned and unanimous the salespeople's responses are. My suggestion then is that there is an ideal opportunity prosecution workflow for both minor and major purchases. Where minor purchases are concerned, this is more likely to be determined in advance by your customers. An enormous variation from customer to customer is unlikely. Where major purchases are concerned, there is still an optimal procurement procedure. It's just that customers are unlikely to be aware of it, which presents your salespeople with the opportunity to take the lead and help the customer to buy more effectively. Making it scalable. Practically, as was mentioned in the previous chapter, the benefits of standardization in and of itself are relatively limited. The real value of standardization is that it enables handoffs between stakeholders in both the sales environment and the associated functions, engineering and production. Of course, without handoffs, there can be no division of labor. Consider the communication between a BDM and a BDC. If an opportunity is being prosecuted according to a pre-existing workflow, after each field activity, the BDM needs only to update their BDC with one of the four possible next steps. They will recommend, number one, abandoning the opportunity, or number two, repeating the activity just performed, or number three, scheduling the next activity in sequence, or Number four, scheduling activity further downstream in the workflow. If the workflow is sensibly constructed, these four options provide sufficient flexibility for both parties, and if more flexibility is required, the design of the workflow should be revised. The important point, though, is that this structure enables a lot of information to be transferred in just a few words. In designing a workflow, we're not trying to map the existing complexity. Rather, we're engineering the complexity out of the sales environment, at least to the degree that it's realistic to do so. Principle 3. Resources should be specialized. If we compare our sales environment to a project environment for a moment, we now have a project plan, our standard workflow for originating and prosecuting sales opportunities, a project manager, our BDC, and a resource pool containing a single resource, our BDM. To exploit the benefits of the division of labor, it's now necessary to add some more people to our resource pool. An obvious starting point is to list the activities performed by a typical salesperson and to determine which are critical for our BDM to perform moving forward and which can be allocated to other resources. I'll start by listing activities performed by a typical salesperson and then assigning each to an activity type. Prospecting, let's call that promotion. Appointment setting calls, administrative. Calendaring and travel arrangements, that's administrative. 
Sales meetings is sales. Follow-up calls, administrative. Solution design, technical. Proposal generation, semi-technical. Production-related activities is technical. Post-sale customer service, semi-technical. Processing, repeat transactions, semi-technical. Data entry and reporting, well, that's administrative. Some of these allocations are obvious and some are a little contentious. So let's be sure to resolve the contention, if we can, before we reallocate some of these activities. Promotion. It's possible for salespeople to originate their own sales opportunities, but the fact that they can does not constitute an argument that they should. And this statement applies to almost every activity just listed too. The thing is, the origination of sales opportunities is extremely resource intensive, if they're originated one at a time. And salespeople lack the resources required to originate them in batches. Typically, the batch origination of sales opportunities requires the ability to procure and manipulate contact lists, the ability to produce hard-hitting promotional campaigns, the resources to broadcast personalized email or snail mail, and perhaps even the ability to promote and coordinate events. Salespeople lack these capabilities, so it makes sense, at least notionally, to allocate responsibility for opportunity generation to the marketing department. Within the marketing department, the origination of sales opportunities is referred to as promotion, one of the four P's of marketing. I say that the origination of sales opportunities is notionally the responsibility of marketing because, in practice, the requirement for tight integration between promotion and sales is so strong that the responsibility for the former cannot possibly be delegated, at least in full, to another department. The practical solution is to add a campaign coordinator to sales. This person must be physically located within the sales department because they must be tuned in to the telephone conversations that are occurring as a direct consequence of the campaigns that they are coordinating. It's helpful to think of the campaign coordinator as a member of the marketing department who's on permanent loan to sales. Your campaign coordinator must understand promotional processes and must have good connections to people in your marketing department. But their primary allegiance must be to sales. As we'll see in part two, your organization's sales activity will quickly grind to a halt if your campaign coordinator loses focus for just a day or so. The campaign coordinator's reason for existence is very simple. To maintain a queue with an optimal number of sales opportunities upstream from the business development coordinator. This ensures that the BDC always has someone to call whenever an empty slot appears in the BDM's calendar. Administrative tasks. It should be easy to see why data entry, reporting, calendar management, and travel arrangements have been characterized as administrative activities. But what about appointment setting and follow-up calls? How can they possibly be administrative? Let's start with follow-up calls. As we have discussed already, at each meeting within the Opportunity Prosecution workflow, it's the BDM's job to sell the next critical activity in flow. If the BDM has done their job properly, the scheduling of that activity is purely an administrative function. On the occasion where a BDC discovers that further input from the BDM is required before the next activity in flow can be scheduled, the BDC should schedule another meeting with the salesperson or a conference call. In either case, this additional meeting does not constitute a material change to the opportunity prosecution workflow. It's just a repeat of the last activity performed. 
If you think about it, the initial appointment setting call is no different from follow-up calls. If the initial meeting has already been sold, the call is simply a scheduling exercise. Consider this real-world example. Nigel is the director of sales for a large recruitment firm, one of our silent revolutionaries. Because he also happens to be the most capable public speaker in the sales department, he's now addressing a room full of senior executives, introducing a controversial approach to headcount management. At the close of his presentation, he will ask the delegates to complete a feedback form and will encourage them to tick a box at the bottom of the form to indicate that they would like to schedule a best practices briefing with Rick, the firm's local consultant or salesperson. It's Nigel's expectation that a little more than 20% of the delegates will tick that box and that virtually all of those will meet with Rick. What's interesting is that Rick's BDC is unlikely to call any of them. Setting those appointments is such a simple undertaking that she will simply send each an email asking them to indicate their preference from a number of available slots in Rick's calendar. In this case, it's clear that the initial appointment setting call is purely administrative in nature. Of course, this is in contrast to the status quo in which the initial appointment setting call is most definitely a sales call. A major benefit of classifying the initial appointment setting call as administrative in nature is that it forces you to sell the meeting in advance of the call. This is hugely beneficial because it highlights the difficulties that BDCs might have setting meetings and it forces management to create more compelling offers and market propositions. In turn, the more compelling offers and market propositions result in better quality appointments and that benefits everyone. Of course, the origination of sales opportunities is a challenging subject, one we'll return to in part two of this book. Technical tasks. Every engineer to order environment has the same problem. Salespeople become entangled in the delivery of the solutions they sell, and this entanglement cannibalizes their selling capacity and generates a host of other problems. This inevitable entanglement has a simple cause. The thing is, Above a certain level of product complexity, a perfect handoff from sales to production is impossible. It's not just difficult, it's impossible. This means that beyond this complexity threshold, information will always be lost when sales hands off a project to production. This information loss cannot be eliminated with more detailed briefings, more documentation or management exhortations to communicate better. There are only two possible solutions to this problem. We can propose only products that are simple enough to sit beneath the complexity threshold. In other words, limit customization to a fixed menu of options. Or we can eliminate the requirement for a handoff altogether. Of course, in major sales environments, the second option tends to be the default approach. What happens is that the salesperson never fully hands off to production, they remain on call after the sale to answer questions and to interface with the client. There is, however, another approach, one that has a profound impact on both the effectiveness of sales and service quality. The alternative approach is to add a third party to the mix, a person we'll call a project leader. In this alternate approach, the project leader and the BDM work side by side for most of the opportunity prosecution workflow. Here are the essential characteristics of this approach. Because the BDM has no post-sale responsibilities, they have more selling capacity. This enables them to engage earlier with clients than they otherwise would. 
meaning that initial contacts are conceptual in nature. At the point at which the client wishes to discuss in more concrete terms their requirements, the BDM introduces the project leader. The project leader takes responsibility for requirement discovery and for solution design. In many cases, these will occur in the form of a formal solution design workshop. From this point until the point of sale, the BDM and the project leader work together. The project leader is responsible for the technical component of the engagement, and the salesperson tends to the commercial component. After the sale, the project leader champions the project as it moves through production. This means that the project leader replaces the BDM as the primary point of contact for both production and the client. The sole responsibility of the project leader is to manage the interface between production and both the client and sales. When they do their job well, the product presented to the client is both saleable and deliverable, take into account, for example, features, price, and delivery lead time. And the product that is ultimately delivered to the client fulfills the client's requirements without compromising the profitability of the organization. Understanding that the client's requirements may have changed or been reinterpreted during delivery. Because the project leader seeks to optimize the numerous trade-offs through both the opportunity management and the delivery phases of the engagement, it should be clear that their role is critical and their contribution invaluable. For this reason, the project leader should always have protective capacity. They should never be overburdened with work. Accordingly, it's not a problem that the project leader works both in the office and in the field. If we're deliberately maintaining the project leader at less than 100% utilization, it's obviously not necessary to maximize their efficiency. Semi-technical tasks. Semi-technical activities include the generation of standard proposals, the processing of repeat transactions, and the provision of after-sales support, for example, issue resolution. All these activities, as well as any others that are semi-technical in nature, should be allocated to the customer service team. Although most organizations already have customer service teams, the primary responsibility for customer service rests with the salesperson. The result tends to be that the customer service representatives, or CSRs, are disillusioned and generally unprepared to take ownership of customer service cases. I'll use the word case to refer to a unit of customer service work. This means that two changes must occur. The customer service team must rapidly develop both the capability and the capacity to take full ownership of the entire customer service caseload. And salespeople must extricate themselves from customer service. In practice, the latter is not as difficult as it sounds. With two simple initiatives, it can be accomplished quite quickly. First, salespeople must avoid taking ownership of customer service cases in the first instance. This is easier than it sounds. For example, if a customer asks a question about an incorrect order, the salesperson might use their cell phone to initiate a three-way conference call between the customer, a CSR, and themselves. Second, customer service representatives must assume ownership of cases as soon as they encounter them. With this in mind, it's useful in the design of your customer service workflow to stipulate that the CSR must send the client an email when each case is opened and closed. Obviously, the first email should make it clear that the CSR is the person responsible for resolving the issue and is, consequently, the primary point of contact. The customer service team must be close to production, ideally in the same building. 
If there's a requirement to perform field visits in order to resolve customer service cases, perhaps to inspect a problematic problem, the CSR should task the project leader to perform this visit and report back with necessary information. If we return to our project analogy, in which I compared a BDC with a project manager, we can now see that our BDC has inherited a resource pool consisting of three resources – a salesperson, a project leader, and a CSR. This means that in order to prosecute each sales opportunity, the BDC will break the opportunity into a series of activities and allocate each activity to one or more of these resources in accordance with the routing specified in the Opportunity Management Workflow. The Customer's Perspective It's easy to see that this model is quite ordered and logical from the organization's perspective, but what about the customer? In asking our customers to interface with multiple people, haven't we just made their world more complex? It's true that in this model, customers will interface with four people, the BDC, salesperson, project leader, and the CSR. It's also true that today, most customers ask for, and most organizations strive to provide a single point of contact. However, reality is a little more complicated than this. It's a mistake to commence this discussion with an assumption that the traditional model delivers good customer service. It simply doesn't. It's also a mistake to take at face value customers' claims that they'd rather have a single point of contact. In practice, customers can be quite aggressive in seeking out relationships with other individuals if they sense that this is in their best interest. My experience is that the following statements are closer to the truth, particularly in major sales environments. What customers really want is a single conversation. In other words, they will willingly speak with multiple people within your firm as long as they do not have to repeat themselves. If customers have a choice between dealing with a single generalist and multiple specialists, they would rather speak with specialists. Although we talk about the customer as if this were a single entity, in most cases there are multiple people on the customer side involved in the purchase and consumption of your products. You will discover that this new model provides a vastly better quality of service, provided you ensure that there's a clear delineation of the responsibilities of the various parties with whom customers interact, and that BDCs, who plan all opportunity management activities, and CSRs, who tend to become customers' primary point of contact between projects, remain in close communication with one another. Principle 4. Management should be formalized. As we've discussed, the downside of the division of labor is that it causes environments to become fragile. Although it's the responsibility of the BDC to synchronize the various team members, management oversight is critical for a number of reasons. BDCs tend to be younger and less experienced than both BDMs and project leaders. Accordingly, the BDC's mandate is very limited. If the sales environment is operating exactly as it should be, they have total control over the schedule. However, a relatively small disturbance in the operation of the environment can render them impotent. The sales function must integrate effectively with other functions, production and marketing to name just two. Because the BDC tends to be relatively inward-looking, it's necessary for a more senior person to interface with those other departments. In most sales environments, there are multiple BDCs, one for each BDM. This means that a more senior person must manage any contention between BDCs or BDMs. In most environments, there's actually a requirement for two managers. You'll need a supervisor to oversee the internal team 
and a more senior person to manage the overall sales environment, including field operators. How exactly to resource these two management requirements is a sensitive subject, particularly in smaller businesses, so we'll have to defer this discussion until part two of this book. In chapter one, we encountered James Sanders' group, JSG, one of our silent revolutionaries. We discussed Jennifer's enormous productivity and the productive relationship she has with David, her BDC, and Philip, a project leader. We also discussed the critical role that customer services played in the remarkable transition that has occurred at JSG. In this chapter, we've seen how the four key principles guide us logically to JSG's sales model, or at least to the more intriguing elements of JSG's model. However, in the interest of simplicity, we've sidestepped a discussion of what's arguably the most important element of JSG's model, inside sales.